Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Ron Lazzaretti, welcome to the Center of the Universe. It's good to be here. This is exactly what I thought the Center of the Universe would look like, and here we are. I, I imagine uh, your your sense of uh, touch is cold right now. Is it cold where you are? Yes, it's a little chilly. It's but it's a sunny blue sky day, so it, it makes you feel like you're warmer. Yeah, you're you're my fourth or fifth uh, Chicagoan that, that I've had on the podcast, and one of uh, the previous folks was a guy named Michael Reynolds. How and you? How do you and Michael know each other? I know Michael through um, his wife Bonnie, who I worked with for for a good number of years. Yeah, he couldn't wait to uh, give me your name and say I should absolutely have you on the podcast. Michael's a good guy. Yeah, he's. He, I only know him through the podcast, but he seemed like a really good guy. You must know uh, a lot of people through the podcast. Oh, it's weird the uh, networking effect uh, this podcast has. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's I get that sense talking to Michael too. He was just yeah, that's great. How long have you been doing it? Uh, about four years. Uh, you're episode two fifty one, so I've been pumping out one or two a week for about four years. And it's just word of mouth. People come pure word of mouth, man. I don't know how to. Uh, brand the thing. I don't know how to market it. Yeah, it's just pure word of mouth. It's great. Yeah, I'm having fun doing it. I, this is the part I enjoy talking to people. Sure. All right. So you're from Chicago. I, I have to start with, uh, and I didn't ask the other Chicago guys, how do you survive as many Chicago winners as you have? Well, I, you know, I like them. Uh, it's, I, I kind of like, that at various times throughout the year, it, this place is like a different planet and uh, has its own kind of winter landscape. And I, th- I just think it's, I've always been drawn to having, you know, the seasons and all that. So I've been pretty stubbornly Midwestern in the sense that I, you know, there was certain things about living the Midwestern life that I never really wanted to give up. Yeah. Is it, is it a sense of it? It's you're rugged. Um, you enjoy the cold, maybe. Um, yeah, there's some. I mean, I go ice fishing with some guys in most years, and uh, people are like, "You do what? Like voluntarily?" Um, but there's something to it when you're in the middle of it. There's just like you're, you feel it. You know, it's great. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you're being stressed in that way, but it, that stress actually makes you better, kind of thing. Yeah, and you know. There's, there's just, it, it brings out different things in people, you know, like you do walk down the street and some guy's stuck in a parking space and you're trying to help push him out. And I mean, that stuff just, it happens. Um, people just treat each other a little differently in that situation. But I, yeah, I, I, I'm like, like a lot of people who live here too are not excited when it starts to snow and anything like that. I, that's, I, I like it. So I don't try, I try not to tell people cause they don't want to hear it, but um but i do enjoy it my my wife would think you're you're nuts she's from new jersey obviously it's it can get cold there not as cold as chicago typically uh and she li- we live in virginia now so it's a little bit warmer than new jersey she's been talking to me for 25 years about being in florida or belize or just not uh, anywhere where it ever gets cold right she well, never wants to go below 70 i and i'm like no i actually enjoy the winters yeah about. yeah i i yeah. And, I, and, you know, I can't, I do really can't see myself as particularly living in Florida or whatever. It's just not in, it's, 
wouldn't be my way. Yeah, no, I, I get that. It's not my way either. I, I, I will tell you, as a younger man, I used to travel to the northern Midwest stupidly in January and February. And like, I, I didn't understand that level of cold as a Virginia guy. I just, I just didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, I don't think I'm on the same planet anymore. <laughs> we had a winter. I don't remember what the year was, but it was like a big snow dump. And then followed by, it just seemed like a couple of weeks. I'm not sure what it was of, uh, of just laying down another inch. So right about the time it was starting to get dirty and ugly and all that, it was start flurrying and then falling again. And it was like, you know, it, it made, it made things great because it never got to that really ugly, ugly part. It just, uh, so yeah, these are the, my perverse pleasures. Are you uh, born and raised Chicago? I am. I lived for a few years. You said it in New Jersey. When I was a little kid, I lived in New Jersey and New York for a few years. My dad was transferred for his work for a while. So, uh, yeah, the only other place I've really lived other than in college or something like that was uh, there. So, you know, um, but yeah, I've been here. I've been here the whole time. So you your family predominantly considers yourselves uh, Chicagoans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. I mean, I live in Oak Park, just outside of Chicago, but yeah, Chicagoans. Yeah, and uh, you, but you have family in New York and New Jersey still to this day, I imagine. Mm, no, not really. Really? Yeah, yeah. There, I didn't. We, like I said, he was transferred, so we didn't have a lot of people there to begin with. And uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, but it was a it was a good time to be in New York and New Jersey because the World's Fair was there, and you know the, the Yankees and the. I mean, it was just. Uh, we, when we were not, it would be like we would take anybody who came from family. A lot of people would come and visit us because all those attractions were there. So we got to be tourists a lot in our own home because every time somebody came, we'd have to go somewhere, you know, Rockefeller Center. And every, every you know, we just covered all the bases and, and saw those things numerous times. So it was a cool, it was a cool few years. But I mean, I was gone by by the time I was eight. But you, you definitely remember those tours of New York. Oh, I it, I remember New York vividly. Yeah, absolutely. It was, that's one place I just still continue to love to, and that's another place people find can be a headache because it's crowded and all that. But I love New York. It's great. Yeah, I, I imagine on your uh, many tours of New York, Statue of Liberty was on the tour. Yep. Rockefeller Center or Times Square in general was on the yep. tour. Yep. Empire State Building. Yep. Yeah, and, and back then the World Trade Centers, those two buildings were around, right? I'm not sure what year they. I don't think so. Not when I first lived there. Yeah, may, maybe they were built just after you came back to Chicago. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New, New York. I I always tell people I could maybe as a younger person live there for a few years. Uh, at my current age, I have zero desire to live in a place like New York. Uh, yeah, I, I spent like I was I was hired as a interim creative director of this big agency in New York. And uh, that it was a summer where I basically commuted the whole time. You know, I, I would be in New York from Monday through Thursday or Friday and then come back. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, it was the only, it was, uh, I, I, it, when it was offered to me, I would thought, I don't really know if I want to, it just sounds like a lot of, but you know, once you kind of get used to the routine of it and all that for three or four months, which is what I did it for, um, it was great. And I love the thing about, I love about New York too, is it just, you never 
really feel alone. There are always there's a sense that there's always something going on outside your door, yeah. and maybe something you want to witness. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, so I, that was another good opportunity to get to know New York a little better. Yeah, I was, was going to say within one square mile, there are probably thousands of things going on from wherever you are, and there's right. many, uh, millions of things happening at any given time. Right. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah, I'm never going to live in New York unless I get divorced, I guess, because she, she'll, there's no way she'll take me back. Well, I don't think I'll be going there either to live anymore, but I'll go, I'll stop by anytime. All right. You, you talked about uh, family visiting, uh, Lazaretti, and you and I talked before uh, this recording, uh, that Lazaretti is indeed an Italian name. Indeed. Um, uh, is your mom also Italian? Yeah, they're both. Uh, so you're both sides. You're full-fledged Italian. Yes. American. Right. Um, my, my wife is uh, half Sicilian, half like German, English kind of thing. And, and so I'm very That's familiar interesting with cross. I like that. Uh, it, it, it lends itself to some entertaining moments. I, I <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I've been around the, the family. They're all I mean, they're it's seemingly there are hundreds of them on my mother in law's side of the family. And I think I, I told you uh, they're Sicilian, which I've learned means nobody can be over five foot seven. Uh, <laughs> And, I, and I'm six three, and so the family reunions, I, I'm I'm like the oddball. Everybody stares at me like they could, they can't believe humans can be this this size. Um, are are you Sicilian on either side? No, um, Toscano and Calabrese. Yeah, so you're you're uh, what I call normal Italian. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> My wife doesn't listen to any of these, so I'm, I'm not going to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, but tell me what it was like uh, growing up in an Italian family. Oh, I, I, uh, it's the only one I've grown up with, so it's hard to, to judge it against others, but I really, uh, I it had a very, a great family life, you know, with great parents. I, I have no horror stories. Um, I'm sure I'd be a much more interesting person if I was in a horrible situation, but I unfortunately was blessed. And, uh, and it's always, you know, Events. It's funny because it's same. Our our house right now is a little bit of a hub. My wife and I were empty nesters and all, but uh, it's still a little bit of a hub uh, as having the the family holidays, you know. And my wife happily takes all of them on. Um, she's just into that and is great. So constant, you know. It's it's great to have. You know, we're in our hometown by and large too. So we just had Thanksgiving here. We'll have. We'll have Christmas Eve here, all that, and and and, and a cast of characters kind of from the family. Um, my mom's side was more the, the characters, and they all lived to be ninety five, and you know they smoked like fiends. Um, but uh, you know they're kind of you know a great post World War II group of people who, you know, experienced that time and the depression and all those things and lived together and made their own fun and all that kind of stuff. That I, I, I suspect I wouldn't really want my whole family all jammed into one building. Um, but at the time growing up, I always thought that was the most romantic notion that there'd always be somebody awake, somebody doing some things and, that, and you know, that you were all sharing that space. Um, I totally romanticized that while I was growing up. And they seem to appreciate that, that kind of upbringing too. But it's, yeah, very much the Italian family. My wife is Russian Jewish and uh, that too is like, 
our families hit it off, you know, right away. I was worried about that. You know, my family is pretty devout Catholics, you know, and, uh, but I found that that we we had way more in common than, than we didn't. Um, and, and the families got together because the families just seemed the same. Um, and they are always a cast of characters, always big hearted people, uh, who like to laugh and, uh, I, may, I imagine that's kind of the earmark of a lot of those kinds of families. Yeah, I, I guarantee you there's a lot of laughter, a lot of energy in the place. Uh, and to your point, there's always something going on. Uh, so, yeah, it's funny. My, I have to share this because <laughs> my Italian mother-in-law, before she met me, my wife described her, or my girlfriend at the time described me to her. And part of that description was I was Baptist. And I don't think my wife or mother-in-law had ever met a Baptist person because they don't exist north of uh, maybe D.C. or Maryland. And she says, oh, my gosh, that means he doesn't dance. She's like, that's correct. He doesn't dance, but it's because he doesn't enjoy dancing. It's not because it's prohibited. She goes, well, he obviously doesn't drink if he's a Baptist. I'm like, no, he he likes drinking. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, it's I, I should have. Uh, hired a camera crew. I wish I'd met you 25 years ago, Ron, and we could have filmed my mother-in-law just being herself over time. <laughs> Everybody loves Raymond. That Raymond's yeah, bad. Yeah. My mom has a little bit of that as well. And she's got the same, uh, same stature. Uh, but uh, yeah, she's, you know, she's, you were talking earlier about four foot seven or whatever. My mom, you know, she, she, and she particularly laments the fact that she's shrinking beyond where she already was. She, I was doing a, 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 sh- a Christmas show at this club that we play at sometimes. And it was a big annual show. It was like the 14th one. And my mom was there and, and I said, <laughs> and I said, my mom's here in the audience, you know, great to have her here. Mom stand up. And she goes, and, and, and I, I, she didn't do anything. She, she's just sitting there. And I said, "Oh, you are standing," <laughs> and and the the place turned on me like yeah, <laughs> it, it was almost a, almost a, a scene. And then and then she stood up and she thrust her hand up in the air and waved like "fuck you," you know. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I assumed I'd get that. You know, you go up against an eighty-five-year-old woman, you're not going to have the popular vote. But, um, but uh, yeah, she, she and she took it in a good spirit anyway. Yeah, it's funny. I've used that line. Oh, you are standing up to sh- with short people, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> well, I'm not exactly a giant either, so you know, I can only. But uh, yeah, the place turned. I never saw a place turn so quickly. I had him. I had him on my side, and I one crack about my mother, and that was it. Did you get him back? Yeah, we got him back. I think when she got up and wave, gave her "fuck you" wave to me, you know, I think that straightened it out. Oh, that's awesome! All right, so when you were in school, like uh, seventh, eighth grade, maybe uh, early high school, what what were you into? Uh, I was into music. Uh, I was in, you know. Neighborhood baseball, a lot more baseball than anything else for for me. In re- with regard to that, um, I liked I liked comedians. Uh, you know, I, I, some of my closest friends, you know, are people who, when we were in high school, somebody 
set a line that they saw on a TV show or a movie and the minute they isolated that line for you, you knew I'm in that guy's tribe. I know right away because he knows, you know, all the words to all the honeymooners episodes or, you know, right. whatever it would have been at the time. And uh, so it's funny, but I think when I think of stuff like comedy and stuff like that, I, I feel like that, that was the, those guys were as much my heroes as sports figures, you know, um, and they were kind of rock stars when I was growing up. I mean, when I was growing up, it kind of culminated in kind of the SNL, Steve Martin, you know, that kind of period. And uh, that stuff was kind of like comedy turning in a, di- in a direction that it hadn't been before, kind of maybe losing some of the vaudeville aspect of it and playing to a, a, something that's either a little more absurd or, you know. Um, so it was an interest. And, and, and guys like Steve Martin were rock stars they were selling out arenas you know that was kind of unheard of up until then you'd go to mr kelly's or something prior to that and be a little nightclub here you know he's playing alpine valley ski hill you know so so yeah that's kind of the kind of stuff i i liked well you mentioned steve martin he's also uh, an accomplished banjo player mm-hmm. uh and i i think he may be the best funniest person who's ever lived potentially I would at least debate it with people. Like he's the kind of guy that you know he's going to be funny, you know he's going to be sincere, you know you're going to have a, a good time, and you're just like I, I just want to be around that guy. Can I can I have ten minutes where I can just be around that guy? Well, and I'll, by all accounts, he's a much more bashful or something guy. Like he's certain he's not the guy and and all that stuff. But uh, I was just recently watching. <laughs> why but i had this somebody i'd gotten a box set from somebody of of the seasons uh one of the seasons of snl which i think was just saturday night live at the time um and it was an episode where it was the blues brothers made their on-camera debut um steve martin was the host bill murray was like a, a new cast member um and you could just tell they were on fire at that point in time you know um, and I just, they, they, they just were so, you know, it, it rock stars for, as opposed to comedians, you just, you, you looked at them and, and this episode was just jam packed with characters and things that went on to become kind of classic stuff. Um, and then that also kind of coincided with the VHS era and we were copying, we were recording these shows and then watching them 20 times because we could, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, the, the, it just seemed like a different time, you know, the Robert Kleins and people like that too, who still kind of go way back, but have had just like a different, different approach just by virtue of their youth. Yeah. This uh, SNL season two, it was probably the most on fire Saturday Night Live has ever been. Um, yeah. And they yeah. thought it was going to be a, a bummer because Chevy Chase was kind of the headliner for season one. And he, he went to movies pretty quickly and they're like, how, how can we ever survive Chevy leaving? And they, they were actually better. Yeah. He lived better. to regret that. I think I just heard him on an interview. He's hard to, he's hard to listen to these days, but, um, but uh, yeah, he was When you think he was the, the thing, and then you consider all that's followed it. I mean, I can't even fathom how many years that show's been on the air. It's just they, some may be better than others, but I, you know, I still check it out, and it's, I still find things in there that make me laugh out loud. So, I always hope that show continues to hold a place. 
Yeah, the continuity for that show is Lorne Michaels and uh, NBC, I guess. I mean, those yeah. are the two that have been there the entire time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let, let's talk about music for a bit. Um, we're, we're, you're a singer and a guitar player. Are there other instruments that you play? No, no. And, you know, I'm, I'm a songwriter, but I don't I, I'm not a, I don't I'm not I don't consider myself a big accomplished uh music person but um but I, i've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really good music people so and work and live and work in a community where there is a music community um so you know but the, yeah I, i've always played i played guitar i went to a catholic school and uh in like seventh grade i got, basically got me and another guy got to sit up at the front of the church and you know, rehearse the the class. You know that was how you do it for first Friday mass, and uh, and the nuns would just just beat down, not physically, but mentally beat down um, the fact that the kids aren't singing. But we, standing in the front of the thing, got away. We just were up there smiling, strumming our guitars, and we were not getting yelled at. So it was uh, it was a good it was a good thing for me to be on the other side of that. But that's what, so I'm figuring that's like sixth and seventh and eighth grade. So that's when I started taking like guitar lessons. And I had a really great teacher who was a Vietnam vet who was just like a classic guy, Steve Bonds. And uh, I worked with, he taught me for a couple of years. And then he decided he quit to quit. And I could just never click with another teacher. So I just stopped doing it. Um, stop playing and stop taking lessons, which was a huge mistake. Kids continue. You have, to, I'm sure you have a huge kid demographic on this. Kids don't, don't, uh, don't give up the guitar lessons. Uh, I wish I had stuck with it, but, but yeah, I mean, at least I stuck with the music to whatever level I was at. Well, you obviously picked the guitar back up at some point. Yeah. 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 I mean, I pretty much played it all through college and all that kind of stuff. When I started having kids, I kind of, put it in a closet for a second, but I, I live in a community just outside of Chicago that has a, uh, a club, actually like a roadhouse uh, called Fitzgerald's. And it's, and it's kind of a legendary space. It's, a, it's got few, a few venues attached, one outside when you, the weather is okay, one on the inside called the sidebar and one, the big club. I started going there in the early nineties. And it, that's where I really met some like, ridiculously talented people um and they were great fun to collect it, 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 like if you went to an open stage or something like that you'd never find yourself like just going up taking your turn and then being done it's like people learned each other's songs so the next time you played it that guy played with you or you might have a you know and and i continue to work with a couple of few different configurations of bands um uh which is it, it just great to have that kind of uh, a collection of people who get to know each other. I mean, I've known these people now for 30 years and uh, continue to make music with a good, goodly number of them. And uh, it's, it's a blessing. I mean, how enriching has that, those relationships and those experiences been for you? I mean, that, that sounds amazing. Well, you know, it's a little like, it, it really is a little, maybe I'm too Catholic or something, but it is a little like church. And, uh, you know, you do have this kind of supportive community, whether it's a, a, a project, an art 
thing that you're working on or whether it's somebody who's in need, you know, you, you find yourself in the midst of a, of a community that, that I remember thinking about it, like, man, this is, this reminds me a lot of growing up and people just sticking together and doing stuff. And then there's also new people that keep rotating through, but it's been an ongoing thing that I really value. And I, and I, if I had known it was here in the West side, I would have moved here to be near it. I just got lucky. I just happened to fall into this space. And, uh, I, I it was a stroke of luck that, that when I walked through one door and a whole world opened up to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's been said a million times. It's certainly cliche, but it's better to be lucky than good. So that, <laughs> that, that luck, um, I imagine it's been awesome for you for the last 30 years. Uh, how would you describe your music? What, what, what form of music do you enjoy playing or listening to? Well, I have pretty eclectic tastes as far as music goes, but the stuff that I do probably, you know, these days gets lumped into something that's Americana or something like that. Um, some of the stuff has just like a little blues feel to it. And the last thing I worked on, I think had a little bit more pop or it was a little more electric. Um, you know, you always have a hard time classifying your own music because it just always feels like, well, it's more than that. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, I'd say these days Americana is kind of, I'm still playing an acoustic guitar. There's a guy to the right of me who's playing an amazing electric guitar and a guy behind me who's playing bass and all. So, but I'm still, I still have basically an acoustic, you know, take on things. Yeah. And that's maybe a little more mellow than uh, all electric. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Than, than that, but it's, it still kind of has its own punch. So, um, but yeah, th that sounds fair. All right. So I, we can come back to music, but uh, you said the word nuns uh, and you also said Catholic school. Uh, tell me, Tell me what it's like going to school with nuns, because by reputation, they they are pretty tough-minded, hard-nosed ladies. Uh, were, you, yeah. were you walking around in fear all the time while you're no, no? In fact, I had I honestly had a very good experience with the Catholic school. You know, for all the horror stories we heard about nuns, you know, hitting your knuckles with rulers and all that kind of stuff when I was growing up. Um, yeah, you know, there was Sister Anastasia was a young nun. Oh, and Sister Michaeline, and they were wonderful. Um, there were a couple of, oh, Sister Joyce uh, was great. I went to a, I went to a, a reunion of that class some years back. It was like a 10-year reunion or something. We were, so I was like 23. Um, and, and I was standing there with a group of people, Sister Joyce uh, being among them. And at some point, uh, she said somebody was making a drink run and she said, um, somebody said, does anyone, oh, I, I think I was. And I, I said, anybody else need something? And she said, um, yeah, I'll take a gin and tonic. And I really wasn't thinking, I wasn't asking her. And um, and I, I was just like, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And she said, can't I have a drink? And I said, no, absolutely. You can, you can have a drink. And, uh, and then the rest of the night, like every 40 minutes, somebody would come up to me and say, um, Sister Joyce wants to drink. And she says she knows what you, you know what she's drinking. Um, and that opened up a whole new perception. 
um, when when we were kids, the um, the not the rectory, the convent that was in in the uh, in that school because they housed all the nuns and the priests, you know, basically on premise at the time, um, and and they were they were the best. I mean, they, they had a sense of humor, whatever. A few a few of them were strict, um, but by and large not so bad. And I remember once they were asking my, me and another kid to go upstairs into the convent to drop off some boxes that we were bringing from downstairs. And I don't think the nuns, you know, had a true sense of just how much that that was like, you want us to go where, um, where the nuns live. And we went up there and there was like telling us to go down the hall where to put it. And there was like a ping pong table in one of the rooms. And I'm trying to picture these nuns playing ping pong. And uh, and everything about it was like kind of plain. Like, I don't know what we thought was up there, um, but it was kind of normal, you know. Um, but still for us, we felt like we'd breached, you know, this amazing, how, we got over the wall. Um, and I still find that about that. I, had, I used to go when a friend of mine used to come visit in town from my old neighborhood. We'd go around there and we'd go hang out on the church steps and and bullshit. And and uh, I just think at the time, even then, it just felt like what's going on in there. And I don't mean the lurid kind of priest, you know, um, because that's one of the reasons I'm not a Catholic practicing anymore. But um, but but the kinds of things that kind of the myth of those spaces upstairs where they all lived together. That was something else that just felt like, you know, I remember walking out into the hallway at school and looking at the end of the hall and there were these big wooden doors and you always knew that there was something mystical about just, if you, all you'd have to do is cross into that threshold and you were in another world, you know, a very mystical kind of world that I, I always found that kind of cool. You know, just like, wow. Yeah. Uh, mysteries are fun to ponder, right? Or, right. Or simply the unknown. Yeah. Right. Uh, all right. So you said you went to college. What, what fine institution did you go to college? I went to Nor- I went to Northern Illinois University, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think I really wore that well. And neither, neither did uh, they. I, I, I did all right in college, but I just didn't like being there. And I had a high school sweetheart and wasn't there. And, you know, I was heartsick, homesick. And, and, and frankly, if I had, even my mother is like, ah, I would have liked it if you could have gone somewhere else. And uh, I just wasn't suited to it. You know, the only upside to it was I was still only an hour and a half out of Chicago. You know, I just never really took to it. And it, in that statement is the college experience in general or NIU's version of that. Um, hmm. Well, it, it was definitely, you know, we were on the middle of a cornfield. There are things that were very much part of that Northern Illinois experience, but there were a lot more people having a much better time than I was having. So I wouldn't pin it on uh, on Northern, but it just, uh, and I had great friendships there. I just, you know what, it just was one of those things. And, and I hate to admit it, but probably, you know, a high school sweetheart back home or at a, or other college, that probably didn't help. I um, I, uh, I'm married to her still. So there, there I guess it was worth the hassle, but <laughs> that was a powerful pull, right? You, you, I mean, you were obviously, uh, 
in, in love. Um, I was in love. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. still are, Ron. Yes. Yes. Uh, all right. So uh, what, what did you focus on while you were there? What were, what were your fields of study? Uh, journalism uh, and kind of like a uh, leaned into advertising. So it was kind of that. But I found that to be a much more and television, radio, TV, film as well. And it was, it was great. But again, I just feel like it was a little more academic than it was hands-on, you know, those opportunities were there. And again, some of it probably fell to me, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it just was one, it, yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, you're, the, the compatibility of it all, um, there was nothing but good people and everybody was, you know, I, I had no bad experiences in there. Um, I mean, I, it is ridiculous, but I gave the commencement address. I mean, which I only bring up to say, I, I hated the place and I did. <laughs> Why were you selected to give the commencement? Some teacher had me nominate, had, you know, nominated this group of kids and that the, they were kids, young adults. Um, to submit um, a commencement speech and whatever it got picked. I just found it so ironic because I could not find the door fast enough. Um, and yet that happened. Well, you mentioned uh, advertising, journalism, uh, and the TV and radio work. When I Google you, there, there's tons, and I mean tons, of evidence of all of that except journalism. Did you, did you ever function as a journalist? I never did. No. Uh, you regret I mean, that? No. Um, no. I mean, I, there was a point where I would, the idea of writing fiction, you know, I wrote short stories and, and did a lot of that kind of stuff. And I was really drawn to some of that, but I was never, I never really, and certainly not journalism. Um, I remember, you know, they were basically the beginning of the class when I was my first journalism class. There was a lot of stuff about stripping away adjectives and being more objective and all that. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I, I, I spent the last how many years trying to learn as many adjectives as I could. And now they're telling me not to use them. Um, so I think that kind of tipped me a little bit that way. But I mean, really, radio, TV and film was my. But there again radio, TV, and film was not necessarily, I, I had some wonderful teachers, but the, it was not uh, really set to, you know, as that kind of school. Um, that that major was okay there. But um, so, yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't know. I didn't look back on that. Uh, so your first job out of school, was it in advertising? Um, yeah, it uh, took a long time. Um, and I started out with a job in, uh, well, it was a PR arm of an advertising agency. And uh, it was, my boss was like, if you're familiar with the old Mary Tyler Moore show, he was like Lou Grant. Yeah. And uh, he really was like Lou Grant. I mean, he was the real deal. Shirt sleeve, his name was Frank Carroly. And uh, he he tried what he could do to whip some discipline into me. But he he was... He was just the perfect character, especially for my first real job, you know. Um, but there again, that was writing press release. I, I, I took that job because 
I needed a job. I needed to work. I was still living at home. You know, it was that kind of thing. I needed to just do something. My impression of you now is that you're you're freelancing. You're kind of doing whatever you want. You you have your calendar back, and you've probably had it back for a while. At what point did you transition from? And but by the way, is that correct? Am I is it an accurate way to describe you these days? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm inching into semi-retirement, I think. But even then, you know, I'm at that point where I just want to make things. You know, I mean, it's like when people say, what do you want to do? It's like, I kind of want to do some version of what I've been doing, which is make things and make a variety of things and collaborate with people in making those things. And um, so that's sometimes that's a film project. Sometimes that's recording some music stuff and all that. I mean, I don't mean to sound like, yeah, I do whatever I want to do. I, I, it's like, you know, I work, I do a lot of different things, but there's that saying about jack of all trades, master of none, you know, it could be that I get bored easily and then I don't, maybe I'd be better at all the things or, or any one of the things I was doing if I'd focused on that. I, you know, I don't mean this like in a way of regret. I just mean, you know, it's just the way things played out and I'm old enough now to kind of see how that all went down. And, uh, but I'm, I also think I'm still doing a lot of these things and it's, and I'm, so I'm grateful for that. It's like everything isn't behind me, you know, at this stage of the game. Um, and I feel really fortunate in that regard. Um, and again, that's by virtue of where I live, who the people are around here, all that has helped, you know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't move to Los Angeles. That was probably, you know, kind of, pivotal and you know I, I do I do I think I should have I, I think I could have done more and gone further if I had done that but it wasn't something I wanted to do so you kind of kind of played you know I went with my heart on it yeah and you're a Chicago guy and um, I imagine there was a, a strong force that kept you in Chicago and it, and Chicago, I think has sustained you uh, in terms of creativity and, and um, in other ways. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about it. It's, it's, uh, you know, you do what you do. It's like, I, I, I try, my biggest goal these days is no regrets, you know, um, and just keep doing it. Um, I don't, I don't uh, fool myself into thinking, you know, you were talking about celebrities earlier and all that kind of stuff. And I don't, uh, that kind of stuff is, I don't kid myself into thinking that I, I'll tell you what, you know, the, the great part about being in a, a situation like advertising or something like that, or is you really do, um, you, you, you find yourself in odd situations where you're meeting people and like we were talking about Michael Jordan earlier and I did a, did a commercial for the Houston Astros with George and Barbara Bush, you know, like strange, what am I doing here? Like I have a picture with my partner and I with them and they look like cardboard cutouts. They don't look like we could possibly be standing there. Um, so, but you know, I, I don't, and, and at the same time, it's like, well, I don't kid myself into thinking that 
I'm important because I stood next to a famous guy. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things where I, I do pinch myself sometimes when that stuff comes around. And I find it cool to be around people of that kind of stature, um, particularly when we have something to do for the day. You know, it's like it's one thing to shake Michael Jordan's hand or whomever and um, and say, I'm a big fan of yours and whatever. And then I'm out of something to say with with the things that we've done kind of in the business. It's like it's it's different than it's it's like okay here's what we have to do today here's what so I, all of a sudden you have a common goal and a job to do with somebody who fascinates you you know so that kind of stuff you know was great but I, but i do keep it in perspective because like whatever is in google or whatever the you know the truth of the matter is that you you just I know you say you make your own luck and that's true, but it is, there is something about the opportunities that do kind of come your way from time to time that put it over the top. Yeah. I, uh, in, in my research and I actually research there, there's something about your history and who you are today that had me, I couldn't stop checking things out, uh, yesterday and, and this morning. Uh, and so I did watch all of season one of graveyard and, uh, I, I thought they were going to be like 22 minute uh, videos for each episode. And I, I was surprised to find that they were two and a half to three and a half minute episodes. Those two actors, I, I I'm familiar with their faces. Uh, their names uh, were new to me. Uh, but David Pesquazy and Christian Stolte. Yeah. They're both very, very funny people. Uh, yeah. And they write that stuff as well. We all, the three of us did. So they're not just acting in that stuff. They help create it and, we share the writing skills and, and, and yeah. And did though the first two seasons, particularly it's a web, I guess we should say it's a web series that, that we worked on called the graveyard show. Um, and they just, we would do it during the, uh, the off hours. Of, so it really was, it, it takes place in the middle of the night, but it really was the middle of the night. And these guys are trying to remember uh, dialogue from scripts that are, you know, I mean, when you put them together, 13, 3, 39, there's like, you know, 40 or 50 scripts for <laughs> pages for them to kind of go through of, of memorized dialogue for the most part. So are you recording multiple episodes each night? We, you know, we do one, each season is one night of shooting. So we, so if you wow. saw, you probably saw, if you saw the first season, you probably saw 13 episodes. Yep. Um, those were all shot in one night. That was kind of our goal. Then the second time we did it, a newspaper guy spent the night with us. And I thought, I hope we get through some scripts while they, this guy's taking notes. Um, but that's what we, the second time we did the same thing in the overnight hours, we owned the building. Then the, then Dave and Chris were like, could we not stay up all night, you know, <laughs> try to remember words in the middle of the night? So um, I said, but it's just, you feel it, don't you? They said, yeah, but we, we feel pretty good when we can memorize the dialogue too. So um, so that's what those are. And that's probably, I think I told you, that's 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 one of the, that could possibly be the, the most fun I've had doing a project like that. Well, it, the impression I had, and by the way, while I'm watching, and once I once I got a, a feel for what you guys were doing, I I, I think I had this like uh, permanent, not teethy smile, but I, I certainly still a smile. Uh, and then I had some moments where I, I had outbursts of laughter, uh, 
I also had the sense that there was a little bit of ad-libbing. Is that accurate? You know, for the most part, no. And people do think that. And Dave is one of the best improvisers in the world. Like, I'm not even exaggerating on that. Um, Stephen Colbert talks a lot about uh, he, Dave, and his partner, TJ. TJ is one of the guys from the uh, Sonic Hamburger Place things. Remember, there were two guys in there. He was one of the guys, TJ. And he, uh, so they're, they're kind of renowned as being the, the, like a great improv team. And so Dave does have that discipline, but Dave was also, he's a guy too, with a different set of disciplines. He, he also starred in, um, Glengarry Glenn Ross at the Steppenwolf theater in Chicago during its run. And, um, Dave can, you know, Dave's an improviser, but Mamet, you know, that stuff is like little syllables and, you know, half words. And, and yeah, it's usually, you don't usually find, from my experience, you don't usually pe- find people who are great at both. Some your, their strength goes one way or the other with improv or, some, or more traditional theater. And um, so the fact that Dave can do both is amazing. Chris kind of comes at it from the other side. He really is more of a classical actor, um, but he is capable of, of improvising the thing and the reason we didn't often do that one of the reasons um is that you just if we tried to make up stuff along the way while we were piecing things together for 13 scripts that we had to finish we'd never get through it and and we'd be trying like crazy to make continuity work and all of that whereas this is like we go in real disciplined about it we have a booklet of 13 well we actually we would go in with like a book of 16 scripts with the hope of getting 13. so we always gave ourselves like wiggle room as to how many we would actually accomplish in a night and we didn't want to discourage ourselves so we made it achievable is, um, is, is the graveyard show a, a reflection of the the th- your uh the three of you your sensibilities or is it really more your sensibilities no, it's the three of us. Um, Dave used to have an apartment in Old Town where he would use as an office. He and his wife would go off there sometimes, and uh, and 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 she. Um, wait, but I was, lost my train of thought. What happens um, to me once a day, Ron. It happens to me all the time. Once. Yeah. Well, I I I know the day is coming where it's going to happen multiple times a day, but I'm still. Well, okay. Well. <laughs> Well, I've remembered. Um, we would get together at this apartment and um, and we would talk for like an hour and a half. And um, just as ourselves talking about, you know what I saw this week or you know what this and that. And and we would just bullshit. And then we go, OK, well, let's talk for a minute about the thing. And we talk about the about the, the, an upcoming wave of scripts like for about 20 minutes and because honestly, all we were doing was absorbing conversations. And we, when you went back to look at it later, you'd find these little hooks, uh, you know, and you'd follow something like that. You just find in our conversation and whatever little notes we took, um, that became the fodder for what we were doing. So it was kind of, and it kind of came through all our relationships. So, um, but it, it was a really fun way to do it. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the stuff that you and I would like that's in a, you know, a much bigger arena, you know, 
I get that sense that people, it's like Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. It's, you know, to that kind of thing. It's, it's Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. It's like, you get the feeling that those people just like loved talking all day long about stuff and cracking each other up. Um, we're obviously not in that level of things, but that it, I, I understand that. I understand that feeling. Well, I have to tell you, uh, the, the one episode that stuck with me out of the first season was, and I I'm not sure why, I think it might have been uh, Dave's smile at the very end of the TP episode. <laughs> yeah. where, where did that, what was the genesis of uh, that episode? I just remembered I was uh, in an elevator and um, the door opened up and and one of the cleaning staff was wheeling in this 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 cart that had like just a giant mountain of toilet paper on it. And I, I really wanted to say to her, wow, do we really go through that much toilet paper? Um, but I, I didn't think she would appreciate it. It sounded like I was making fun of her or something, but um, yeah, so, I mean, so it's only to say it could usually something that mundane, you know, I guess the idea that, seeing a big thing of toilet paper could actually be an episode. Well, the play on uh, toilet tissues versus <laughs> issues. I mean, that, that was, that's, that's, for, I've never heard anyone have that one as a favorite. That's uh, <laughs> that goes in the book. I, I, I think if I rewatched uh, the first season, I might have a different favorite, but that one, for some reason, I watched all of them this morning and uh, that one stuck with me. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think humor is mostly about observations and, and putting words to those observations. Yeah. I mean, obviously these guys, you get to know them by their behavior, you know, and, and I, I, I that, I don't know. It's hard to explain why that is, is that I would do those forever. If I could, I would do nothing but those episodes. Um, I imagine just, you're having a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. All right. So this is the longest I've gone into an episode talking to another person that, that has a podcast before the, the term uh, your, your podcast comes up. And I learned about the fact that you have a podcast. I didn't get a chance to listen to it yet because uh, I wouldn't do it anymore. But yes, oh, it stopped. OK, yeah. I, but I learned about it on the Hog Butcher uh, website. Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I I guess why did you stop? Just you're you kind of just bounce to the next thing and well it's like you know sometimes you do yourself no favors by doing all those things sometimes it's like something's got to give um and i guess i think i just felt like it was starting to suck a lot of time that i i really to continue would have needed help mm. you know it just it, in and of itself you know i guess if it was perhaps the only thing I had going or the only thing I wanted to do at the time might be different. And I really spoke, you know, I spoke to a lot of people who were some of whom I knew, some of whom were really interesting to me. I mean, it had a Chicago bent. You talked about earlier about being a Chicago person. Part of it was just this ongoing chip on the shoulder about why does everybody have to go to this coast or that coast and whatever. We've got all of this here, all of these resources here. That's kind of what my company hog butcher was kind of, founded on, you know, uh, a collaboration with a creative director in town named Tom O'Keefe at an agency called OKRP. At the time, he, he, we were working at FCB, um, you know, Foot Conan Belding. Um, so 
it, at the time it just ended up being like I was having a hard time just handling the workload and it was getting harder because, well, you're doing it. You're, you're casting, you're, you're pulling in people to be on this. You don't know who's going to be on the next one or whatever. Um, I, I was finding it hard to focus on bringing in just these different people with this Chicago attitude. That's where hog butcher came from. It's from a Carl Sandburg poem. Um, and so everything about it was a little bit based on stuff that was Chicago oriented, starting with improv and things like that. Um, so I really enjoyed doing it just like you seem to enjoy doing this show. Um, and I don't write off, you know, the f doing it in the future. It was just right about the time when I felt like I couldn't get a handle on it was a time when it felt like, all right, there's too many people doing this or there's too many, you know, and I had, or, or I don't have the time or the will to keep going, but I love virtually every conversation. I, I can't think of any conversation I had as part of that, that didn't fascinate me. And uh, I think you're the same way with regard to, you have an admirable sense of, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you have a sense of curiosity about people and it's what you say as well. And I think that that's great. I, I feel like I do too. It's just like everything else. I don't, I, it's hard to do every aspect of it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great answer. Uh, I, I hope you get back to it because uh, I, I think it probably scratches an itch or two for you, uh, but maybe you're scratching those itches in other ways. Uh, yeah. I imagine you are. Mm -hmm. So when I, I got to the Hog Butcher website, I'm like, what in the world have I stumbled into? There's so much content there and it's so diverse. Like how, uh, how long, when did Hog Butcher start? Uh, I want to say 12 years. You've put, you've done a lot, Rod. You're, pro, you're prolific. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, it, you know, I get excited about certain things and, and, and if you find other people to play with and make it worth everyone's while, uh, it's amazing what you can get done. I mean, we always talk about that. If you're shooting an independent film versus a commercial, if you've ever shot like a film, a little film in particular, you can't believe just how much dicking around there is, you know, in some, you know, it's in some productions in the commercial world. It's just like, you know, you're trying to please a lot of people. So you're constantly, you're trying it this way. You're trying it that way. You got to do what the client wants. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. I'm not bitching about it so much, but uh, that's just the way it goes. Um, but you, you realize when we did like these, there's a film called Something Better Somewhere Else. And it's four, sto four stories, like 20 minutes each. And, you know, we would get that done in between trains kind of. And as a result, you know, I just feel like we got a lot done because we, we didn't really have to worry about the approval of everyone. And um, it's just it can be a it can be a brutal business that way. Advertising just, you know, sitting there trying to keep the idea on track and trying to keep certain people happy. And it's just the nature of the beast. I know. But um but yeah, you can get, if you put your mind to it, you can get things done, you know? I, I do have to ask, because I'm, I'm a big fan of Michael Keaton, the actor. How did you, so you wrote uh, The Merry Gentleman. Uh, you were one of the producers on it. Uh, and by producing, I think you're, the producers are the guys that just put everything together, right? 
you, you fill in the gaps. You, you just make sure it's, the thing keeps going. It's different. It's that definition changes. Um, I would say a lot of times they play a much bigger part than, you know, than just kind of keeping everything moving. I think uh, some people, you know, a producer might have initiated a project and then is overseeing all the creative stuff on it. You know, it varies depending on what the situation is. I noticed there's a lot of credits on TV shows these days where virtually the entire cast is an executive producer or something like that. So these terms get kind of bandied about. Um, but yeah, that uh, that was a kind of a crazy experience from the get-go but um yeah memorable how, how did michael keaton come to be the director <laughs> well i'm going to try to figure out how long i want to make this story because it gets um we i had written the merry gentleman and we were sending it around and uh a gentleman i was working with at the time his name was tom bastonis he and his family he was an actor at one point he and his family owned a uh, a fruit market uh, in the in in Fulton in in the in the marketplace there, and so he we were trying to get some stuff done, and one of them was the Merry Gentleman, and we were sending it around to a variety of people, and at some point uh, Michael Keaton experienced uh, I mean expressed some interest in it, mm. so we got word that he was pretty hot to do it. I was supposed to direct it actually originally. And um, so uh, talks had begun and all that. It was around Thanksgiving time. And I got, I'd got kind of sick around Thanksgiving and it kind of, I was having a hard time shaking it. I had flu-like symptoms and all that. And I'd been to the doctor and they hadn't really caught anything. But I went again, like a, a day or two before I was supposed to go meet Keaton in California to talk about this. And we had been told that he, you know, really was interested in doing it. So I was prepared to do that. But before I did, I was, I said, I got to go to the doctor one more time. Well, turns out my appendix was, had begun rupturing. It hadn't actually fully ruptured yet, but it was leaking <laughs> for lack of a better word. And um, when they found that out, they were initially going to, I, there's, there's minutia here, but when they found that out, um, they were immediately going to take me into surgery and, and take, but then they decided this thing is infected. This thing is whatever that we can't, we can't go inside there because we're just going to release all the poison that's in him because it had formed like a, an abscess. So they decided they had to basically puncture a hole in my stomach and get to this thing. And, spent two months, you know, trying to get the infection to go away with a bag and from my stomach. That's just mm. like, it was horrible. Yeah. It sounds awful. And while I was in the hospital with like 105 fever, um, Keaton called, I, I knew it was him because it said unknown caller or one of those, you know, and I, and I was pretty looped on morphine and my wife said, don't answer that. And I said, I think that's him. I'm going to answer that. And I picked it up and he said, should you even be talking on the phone? And we had this conversation and it kind of went back and forth. Um, and at some point in a kind of go for broke moment, I said to him, you know, I well, first we were talking about movies we liked. And I said, this movie, there are aspects of it 
that are kind of like a fable. And I think, um, I think, I, I think that like, it reminded me of a, a, a movie that I like a lot called Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum. And he said, I love Night of the Hunter. And I felt like, oh, we just, we had a bonding moment. And I, and the, I almost screwed it up, but I, I said, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but this guy kind of reminds me of Batman. And I thought that could go either way. And, uh, and he, and he said, yeah, I know what you mean. The dark hero kind of, I said, oh, good. Okay. So then the thing was kind of like set still for a while until I could get better. And they were trying to decide what to do. And I was, since I was also kind of working producing on the thing as well, it was like, I, I wanted to see it get done. And if Michael Keaton wanted to do it and all that, at some point he said to me, if you're not going to be able to do it, how would you feel about me directing it? And, and I would certainly need your help, but how, how, what would you think of that? And at the time we didn't know how, how long this was all going to take. And I was going to have to have surgery at the end of it again. Mm. And we, it was a winter movie called the Merry gentleman. And it just was, it had to get moving or not happen. And then when these things don't happen, it's, it puts the whole thing kind of like, it, it goes away a lot of the time. Cause then yeah. Michael's thing changes and this guy's thing changes. We can't get that director of photography. All these stars had aligned. And I said, if this will help us to get the thing done, then great. There's other projects to be had and all that. And so I was really for it. And, uh, and, and I was, you know, vocal in my support of all that. Uh, so ultimately that's what happened was we, but in the meantime, everything leading up to that took longer and longer. And we weren't sure if we were going to make, we couldn't, if there were leaves on the trees, we couldn't shoot this movie because Oh, wow. It would have been sort of impossible. So we were sitting around hoping it would happen soon. When it did happen, finally, I, I you know, I, people say, do you wish you hadn't? It? Because I was able to be on the set from then on. But they said, you know, do you feel bad that you gave it away for as a director thing? And I, I honestly can tell you at that time, I really didn't feel that way. I, I felt like I felt like that was the way that was the way it kind of had to go. And it was still bound to be a good experience. And it was, uh, particularly through the shooting. Um, things got, kind of, and I had what I considered a really nice kind of rapport with, with Michael. Um, it, when things went into post-production and all that, things kind of took a left. And I think a lot of the collaborative spirit that started the thing made it just difficult um, I think there was kind of a clash of the wills. And, um, and so it, the, the follow-up was tough. And I think everybody walked away feeling a little bit, but you know, it's like, that. I, I find, I think that is the nature of this beast as well. I really think that there's not, how, how much, how good a time you had on the making of a movie does not equal what that movie you know it's just not and um so but at the end of the day and it's funny because i wanted to i haven't watched it in years and i'm a little curious but by the end of it compromises were made by both sides and all that um but i have to say there were things that i saw in it that michael i think was very much 
into that I originally wasn't that came out. Like, I think he brought a little bit more of the humor out of the thing. You know, it's a little bit weird because I, I wrote the thing. And frankly, I, there were times when I was more willing to change it than he was. I mean, I think he was truer at various points in the script to the script than, than I would have been. Um, but there was still a, ge a generous collaborative spirit on that thing up until the time we all kind of parted and then went into the post-production. It just was a great regret of mine that it didn't end on, on the right foot. I just didn't feel. Um, and then there were lost, you know, I felt a little caught in the crossfire of some lawsuits and things of that, that, you know, um, that, you know, came as a result of all that. It's weird because now, you know, I've, I find that, you know, it's weird. We got good, we got good reviews, like from the New York times, the LA times, Roger Ebert gave, you know, it's like, there were times I felt like if all I ever wanted was a really good review from Roger Ebert and, uh, and he, and he gave it to us and gave another one like in about a year after that with that's for something better somewhere else. So we were, you know, that was, that whole thing was important to me. And I think that the movie is better than probably all of its creators would give it credit for because everybody didn't get their way. Yeah. It's you say lawsuits. And by the way, we're a little over an hour run. Uh, so this will be my second to last question. That's you okay. say yeah, I got a little time. Don't worry about it. Okay. You say lawsuits is, and I, you've made uh, a lot of commercials. You've done some independent films are lawsuits, just the natural course of things when making mm -hmm. a movie like that. Mm, I, I wouldn't say it's a natural. I just would say, no, I, I feel like I do. I would just say that, you know, relationships and collaborative relationships, all of that stuff is a little bit up for grabs. I don't think it always ends up in a lawsuit. And it was too bad that that, I mean, but even the lawsuit went away. So, but I do think, you know, it's a, it's a litigious society. Is that the word? Litigious? Litigious? Litigious. Is the way litigious. I said yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but uh, but no, I don't think it's necessarily indicative of how things go. I just think it how good a time you had is not always indicative of how the movie comes out. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I usually end each episode with uh, asking about your family, so your wife, kids, that sort of thing. Or, or maybe the, maybe the question is who's coming over for uh, Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve, uh, cousin Bob will be there. Uh, my aunt Betty will not be there. She passed away recently. Um, uh, there used to be a bunch of 93 year old relatives, like we were talking about before. Um, and, and I miss the characters, but, uh, it's fun. Cause now the kids are getting, the kids aren't kids anymore. I've got a daughter and a, my son is 35 years old. My daughter's 32 years old. Um, everybody's doing pretty wonderful for me. I mean, I'm really grateful that we've been uh, that we've been blessed, and uh, that we have each other, and that we all get along. And my brother will be here. He'll be um, he smokes the salmon, he uh, cooks the pheasant, he does. It's we do all the we do a bunch of the fish, although not all of them. Um, what do you do? Uh, we do Christmas uh, morning at my house, and then Christmas afternoon at my mom's house. Uh, Christmas Eve is not, uh, we don't do it. We used to do things Christmas Eve, but people have moved and it just, 
that Christmas Eve uh, tradition kind of fell apart for us. Um, but it's it's my family of five, my in-laws, they're both around. Uh, my parents are still around. Uh, I joke because uh, my three kids have always known their grandparents to be within a 10-minute drive, all four of them. And I, they don't know any other kids that have that um, these days. And so I, I joke that when my in-laws and my parents are uh, too old to care for themselves, we're going to have a giant Willy Wonka bed in our basement and all four of them will sleep in it <laughs> and willie wonka bed i like that yeah i think Char charlie's grandparents all stayed in the same bed yeah so i remember that jack we'll that yeah yeah it's if nothing else we're obviously probably not going to do that in reality but i i still want the picture i want to i want to put them in the the attire and find a, a bed that has two headboards and, and <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be really really funny at least to me yeah, following question, why did you mention Cousin Bob first? He's one of our guests that's, you know, not not part of the immediate family, but part of the family. I, I sort of think, oh, and I got a new puppy just came bounding into the room. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a puppy as well. You forget their energy when, when you don't have a puppy at the house. Oh, my God, I love it. <laughs> well, Rod, I, I'm sure you got uh, things to do today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you have a wonderful personality. You're, you're fantastically creative, and I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to chat with you. Well, Paul, it was a pleasure for me. I can't believe that was an hour. So good luck to you. I, I'll keep an ear on you. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Ron. Take care, pal. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodypodcast.com.